0: Uh, Well, if you've been a Christian uh, for a long time, or maybe even for a little while, you, you know that we tend to have lots of peaks and valleys in our walks with Christ. Um, we, we have times where it seems like we've never had more focus on the Lord, never had more zeal, never had more joy. We want to share our faith. And, and during those times, during those mountaintop times, we tend to make our big commitments and we say, that's it, I'm never going back. I'm never coming down from this mountain. I don't want to lose this closeness with Jesus Christ that I have right now. And so we, we cling to him, we make commitments, and, and all of that rightly so. You know, we taste how sweet it is to be walking with Jesus, to be totally abandoned to him, and we say, I don't want to go back. I want to keep my heart in this place where it is. But then inevitably, that focus tends to leak, it tends to fizzle out, we get distracted, and things just end up not being what they should be. And the Bible really presents this as the constant struggle of the Christian life. In Colossians 3, it says this, it says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Like he calls us to keep going back to seeking those things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. So we're told over and over again to keep our minds there, seek those things, because it's so easy to start seeking other things. But we go through our week, we go through our days, and because we can't see God or or feel him in in a tactile way, all the things that we can see and feel tend to take the preeminence. And because we don't necessarily see miracles every day, it's easy for, our, for us to set our minds on everything else and set the message of Jesus and our love for Jesus on the back burner in the back of our minds. And then what we tend to do is when we recognize how far we've fallen, we recognize how far we've walked away, and we want to recapture that joy, we try different things. Uh, you know, One of the things we'll try is nostalgia. You know, we'll look back and we'll say, when was it that I was the most passionate about Jesus? Well, it's when I was in college. And so, so we bust out some of the old CDs that we used to listen to while we were in college. And we start playing those again. But it seems like Michael W. Smith doesn't give you the same buzz that he used to. And so you, you play it and, and it doesn't seem to work. Or you say, I remember this time, I I was on a missions trip, and those people, man, we were close, we were praying, we were confessing sins. I'm going to reunite, I'm going to get together with these people again, because I want to recapture that. And so we get together with those people, and we recognize that they're actually struggling with some of the same worldliness that that we're struggling with. And so it seems like that doesn't do it. And so, so we make all kinds of moves to try to recapture that heart and recapture that joy, and we should be trying to recapture it. But what we're going to look at here is not a magic bullet, it's not a cure-all, but it's one of the primary tools that God gives us to keep that gospel faith fresh and new in our hearts. So we're going to go to Mark 14, verse 12. It says, and on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. "'Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, "'The teacher says, where is my guest room, "'where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? "'And he'll show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. "'There prepare for us.' "'And the disciples set out and went to the city "'and found it just as he had told them, "'and they prepared the Passover.'" So the disciples are going to this upper room to prepare to eat this Passover feast. And the Passover feast wasn't a new thing that Jesus invented. It had been going on for about 1,500 years or so. Um, And it was given by God to commemorate the greatest thing that ever happened to the Jewish people. If you remember the story, they were slaves in the land of Egypt. They were working hard under Pharaoh. Um, He was brutal in the way that he ruled them. And then God led them out of there. Uh, He led them out through Moses. He sent Moses to Pharaoh and told him, go tell him to let my people go. And Moses kept saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh kept saying no. And God kept sending plagues. And, And every once in a while, it seemed like Pharaoh thought about it. But the plagues kept coming. And then finally, God said, there's going to be one more plague. And it's going to be the death of the firstborn. And so the warning he gave was that in every house all throughout this land, the firstborn son will die so that Pharaoh will break and so that you can go. And God said, there really are no exceptions to this. You know, there's no one righteous, not even one. Uh, God's going to rain down his justice on the land. It's going to come down on Egypt. And it's also going to come down on the Jewish houses. Everybody is going to experience this plague, but there is one way out. And the one way out is to take a lamb... And sacrifice it. And if you believe enough that God is speaking through Moses, if you believe that these are his words, then your response of faith will be to, to sacrifice that lamb, take its blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of your house. And when the destroyer is passing over, your firstborn son won't die because a lamb died instead. So the way that it would work is that in every house, there would either be a dead son or a dead lamb. And then it all happened like God had promised. Uh, th- that morning they woke up and there was death everywhere. But in the houses of the people who believed enough to respond and offer that lamb, there, there was only a dead lamb and their son survived. Um, so, so Pharaoh says, fine, go. And they leave quickly. They leave so quickly that their bread didn't have time to rise. So they eat unleavened bread just to pack the calories in and get out of there. They, they go, they get out of there, and for 1,500 years... The Jews had been celebrating the way that God had led them out of Egypt, the way that he passed over the homes where they had responded in faith and offered that lamb. And so they celebrated who God was and what he showed them about who he is in that Passover. So the Passover feast every year was a way of getting together and celebrating that God had saved them, that God was merciful, that God didn't look at human suffering and misery and and the suffering of the Jews and just recoil in disgust, but he cared He intervened. He saved them. And so they would gather, and the head of the household would lead the procession as they would uh, take wine and almost make a toast with four different cups of wine to remember the things that God had done. They would quote from Exodus chapter 6, where where at the Passover time, God said this. He said, "'Say therefore to the people of Israel, "'I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians.'" And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So they would get together and and in this physical tactile way they they would almost toast to the faithfulness of God. They would remember the promises of God that God kept, that I will bring you out, I'll deliver you, I'll redeem you, I'll make you my people. And they did this every springtime to commemorate God's faithfulness. Uh, They would also eat unleavened bread to remember the way that the Jews left Egypt in such a hurry that they, they didn't have time for their bread to rise. And so the central symbol of that Passover gathering was that unleavened bread. And this feast and what this feast represented, it gave God's people their identity as a people. They say, God looked at us and he favored us. He blessed us. He rescued us. And not only did he rescue us, but then after he rescued us, he gave us his word. So their whole identity came from the fact that they had been rescued by God and they had been spoken to by God. And so the feast that celebrated who they were and what God had done was this Passover feast, and they celebrated it every year. It was the holiest and most significant holiday on their calendar. It really had the same weight as our Christmas morning has for us for them. It was a big deal. It was a time when families would reunite, the heads of the households would lead them in their prayers and in their remembrances, and they did it all the time. You didn't miss the Passover. That was the time you got together with family and celebrated who you were and who God was. Um, but already this setting's a little bit unique because look at Mark 14, verse seven. It says, and when it was evening, he came with the 12. Now, normally these guys would all go home and they would eat the Passover with their, their families. But here, instead of eating with their families, they're eating with each other. Now, we would think this would be weird. Like if someone came up and said, you know, this year at Christmas time, I'm just gonna celebrate Christmas with a bunch of guys from work we'd all say that either your family's out of town or there's something wrong at home. Something's not going right. Um, There's some reason that someone wouldn't celebrate Christmas with their family. Something must be broken or else you're just in town by yourself. You don't have family here. But here are these disciples, and they are not celebrating the Passover with their families. They're celebrating with one another. So this is saying something strong about who they are. They're like a family. And Jesus is like their head of household. Um, th- this is a very unique Passover already, but then Jesus says something startling, and especially, especially in light of that, verse 18. It says, And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So at first it appears like they're real unified. They're getting a lot of identity and family, family life from one another. But then Jesus says, one of the guys who's here at the table is going to betray me. Now we'll come back to these verses in a couple of weeks when we talk about Jesus' betrayal by Judas and his denial by Peter. But Jesus right here is revealing that somebody is sinning, somebody's rebellious against him, and somebody is not altogether there in their heart toward Jesus. So look how they respond to that. Verse 19. They began to be sorrowful and to say to one one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So Jesus says he's going to be betrayed, and normally these disciples, you would expect that they would start pointing fingers at one another. I mean, just a couple chapters ago, we saw these guys fighting over who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. We would expect that that's how they'd be talking here. They'd immediately point at Matthew and say, well, that guy was a tax collector. It's probably him. Or Judas has seemed pretty shifty lately. Um, He just seems nervous and disappears for a while. Um, It's probably that guy. But they don't. They don't start pointing fingers at one another. They all start pointing fingers at themselves, and they say, is it me? So something's happened that has humbled these guys, at least for the moment. Now, Mark doesn't give us this part of the narrative, but in the Gospel of John, at the beginning of this feast, Jesus comes in, and even though he's the head of the household, even though he's the one who's going to conduct the ceremonies, he puts on a towel and dresses himself like a slave, and he goes around and does the work of the slave and washes the feet of all of the disciples. So maybe, maybe the reason that they're humble here is because Jesus was so humble at the beginning of the feast. Here's Jesus, who has no business being humble because he's God. He's humble. And then because humility is contagious, these disciples, when they hear that someone might deny Jesus, their response is a humble one too. This is important for us to remember because sometimes we try to attack arrogant people by being louder and more arrogant than they are. Uh, Jesus fought arrogance with humility, and his humility ended up being contagious among these disciples. Uh, But Jesus continues, verse 22, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. So this was normal at the Passover. The unleavened bread would come out, the host would hold it up, and he would say, this is the bread of our affliction that our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. That's normally what you would say. But Jesus does something unheard of here. He holds up the bread, and instead of saying the same thing that they've been saying for 1,500 years, he holds up the bread, and he says, take, this is my body. Now, this would have been a shock, because you can't just redefine a holiday in a second like that. I mean, hopefully all of you would leave the church. If I said, this year, our Christmas Eve service, it's going to be all about me. Uh, this year at Christmas, we're celebrating me. Um, so, so come on out to the celebration. Hopefully none of you would come. You, you would know that Christmas is not about me. and It's always been about the birth of Jesus, at least until the last 50 years. Now it's about Santa and shopping. But um, like that's what it's about. You can't just redefine the core in a second like that. Um, it, it's taken a long time for us to redefine Christmas in our country. Here Jesus redefines it in a second. He holds up the bread, and he says, not this is the bread of our affliction which we ate in Egypt, but he said, this is my body. So he's teaching something radical here. There's going to be a bigger deliverance. What he's about to do is going to supersede even the greatest thing that happened in their history, the Exodus. There's going to be deliverance from oppression and slavery, but the oppression and slavery is going to be the oppression of Satan and sin and death and the judgment of God, and Jesus is going to lead the Exodus out of that. The affliction that we'll remember now when we take this bread won't be the affliction in Egypt. It'll be the affliction of Jesus. Isaiah had promised that there would be a suffering servant who would come. He said this. He says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So God had promised that a suffering servant was going to come, and Jesus, by holding up this bread and saying, the affliction is now going to be talking about my body, he's saying that he was going to be the suffering servant. We could spend hours unpacking all this means. In fact, we spend every week unpacking all this means, because what this means is the gospel. What this means is that Jesus Christ is our exodus. He's the one who freed us from a greater slavery, slavery to our sin that we feel like we can never beat, slavery to religion that seems like it can never be satisfied jesus came and by dying on the cross he led us out of that so that brings a whole new meaning to that exodus 6 passage that jesus will be the one who brings us out jesus will be the one who delivers us from slavery he'll be the one who redeems us he'll be the one who makes us his people he's radically redefining everything So this means that Jesus is our exodus. He frees us. This means what we know to be true, that at the heart of Christianity is not just the example of Jesus that we follow, though we should try to follow his example, but the substitution of Jesus Christ that we're supposed to accept and embrace. When Jesus Christ died on the cross because he was infinitely perfect and he was afflicted, those were the afflictions that should have been ours. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And as Christians, at the heart of Christianity is not just the way that we live, not just the things that we do, but at the very heart is the affliction of Jesus on our behalf on the cross. And now because he was afflicted, we can have our sins forgiven. We can be free. We can be right with God. We can be right with one another. Um, This means that now the feast of our identity, the place where we get our identity as Christians, is not just from the Exodus where God rescued, but from the cross where God accomplished an even greater rescue. You know, in the past, they celebrated the fact that God got them out of Egypt, but we're celebrating something even bigger, that we've been rescued from Satan, sin, and death, and hell. Jesus Christ is our exodus. This is where we get our identity uh, from the cross. As Christians, we're the people of the cross of Jesus. We're the ones who believe and love the cross more than anything. This, by the way, is why when we take the Lord's Supper together, we say that that's just for Christians, um, now we, as a church, we open up every door of our church to, to Christians and non-Christians alike, and we know that there are people who are here who would say that you've not embraced Christ yet, and we want you to know you're welcome here. We want you to continue to explore, continue to check out the claims of Christianity. Keep asking questions. Don't feel rushed or pressured, but keep going, keep looking, keep seeking, because if you seek, you will find. But if you're here and you haven't put your trust in Christ yet, when we take the Lord's Supper together, we would ask you to stay in your seat. And the reason we do that is because this is the feast that points to our identity as Christians. That once we've accepted and embraced Jesus, that becomes who we are. That becomes what we're all about. That's the central uh, truth from our history. The cross of Jesus really is our exodus, and that's what we celebrate together. So this means that Jesus is our exodus. It means that at the heart of Christianity is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for us to embrace, not just an example to follow. It means that we get our identity from Jesus Christ. And it also means for us as a church, we get our unity from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You know, We've been, been at this now. We planted the church. It'll be four years ago this coming fall. And God has blessed us. He's changed us. He's grown us. The church is so different than it was even a couple of years ago. But one of the things that will happen here and anywhere else is that we are, as we get to know each other, as we get closer to one another, we're going to sin against each other. Um, Not only will we sin, we're going to make each other mad. We're going to fail each other. We'll start to get suspicious of each other's motives. We'll start to wonder, what's that other person saying behind my back? But we can be unified not because none of our suspicions are true, because sometimes they're true. We can be unified not because we never sin, because we sin. We're a sinful people. But we can be unified because all sins were taken care of by Jesus Christ. So when we take this supper together, we're announcing something about our unity. We're saying that every way that we've offended one another, whether it's real or whether it's imagined, was all taken care of by Jesus. He paid the price for it. So so sometimes we, we refuse to forgive and we keep fighting one another because we feel like we need to make them pay. But by taking this supper, we're remembering the cross that says that Jesus paid. He paid for all of it. It's covered. So we can come to this table together and leave this table knowing that we're completely clean in our relationships with one another, not because none of our suspicions are valid, but because the cross of Jesus took care of all of them. I've been forgiven, you've been forgiven, and I can't not forgive you. As a church, we want to be unified, but I guarantee all of our human efforts toward unity will fall short because we're too different from one another. I mean, how it's impossible on human terms to be a church where all of the races worship together where men and women worship together, where church people who've been in church your whole life and people who just came to faith in Jesus last week can worship and grow together. It's impossible for suburban and urban people to worship together, educated and uneducated, uh, people with great careers and the unemployed to all come together and all worship Jesus Christ. We won't be able to hold that thing together. We can't do it. There's just no way that we could meet everybody's need and please one another. There's no way that could ever happen. But the one big thing we have in common is that the body of Jesus Christ was torn for all of us. We're all sinners. We all need redemption. We all fall short. And Jesus Christ has accomplished that redemption completely on the cross. And so as different as we are from one another, there should be at our heart a love for one another and a unity based on the shed body of Jesus Christ. We all came to Jesus the same way by recognizing our sin and trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that God got that message to us all in the same way. Uh, our stories are very different. And you read through the Bible, and the stories of the people who came to faith in Jesus were, were very different. With the disciples, Jesus just calls them and says, Come follow me. And they start following him, and somewhere in there they put their faith in Jesus and they're saved. The Apostle Paul, he's riding his horse, and God just smacks him and says, You're going to be mine. And he gets saved. I mean, we see it throughout history. Um, C.S. Lewis, I mean, this guy, if if there's just not a nerdier thing, he was meeting with Tolkien. They used to meet together to talk about the mythological creatures they were making up. (laughs) Is there a nerdier thing you could possibly do? Like, is there a weirder thing? Um, And here they were. They would get together and say, hey, you want to hash out mythological creatures? Sure. And listen, I'm pretty nerdy, but I wouldn't go to that. (laughs) Like, I'd be like, no, you you guys have a good time. Um, Let me know how that goes. Um, you you play Dungeons and Dragons without me. But um, that that would be, I'd be rejecting it, but here they are. They're having their nerd fest, and God shows up and saves C.S. Lewis. So in all kinds of different ways, God shows up. God brings faith to people in all kinds of different ways. But at the heart, what's always true and what's always the same is that we all needed the death of Jesus. We all needed him to be broken for us. It was all by his body and his blood that we come to God. So as much as we're different, we have something that should be unifying for us in the death of Christ. And so every time we get together and we eat this Lord's Supper together, we're reminding ourselves of this truth. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three, Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So here it is. I mean, this tool that God's given us to renew our faith, to renew our joy, to strengthen our unity, the tool that he's given us so that that can be continually refreshed is this Lord's Supper, is remembering the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, a question that comes up is, well, when we say that it's his body, what does that mean? Uh, is it literally the body Of Jesus Christ. Is that literally him that's there? And this is a major distinction between Catholicism and Protestantism, uh, whether we believe in the idea of transubstantiation, and you don't have to write that down, but it's a word that means change of substance. Um, Within Catholicism, and I don't want to misrepresent it at all, um, they believe that once the bread is held up and broken, that Jesus Christ is so present with it that to receive that bread is to receive Jesus. Um, to, to the point where the substance of the bread changes and it's now the literal body of Christ and the literal blood of Christ. Well, the reformers came out of the Catholic church and they disagreed strongly. Um, they said this is a remembrance. In fact, they looked at the idea that things transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ and they called it hocus pocus. And, and the reason for that is because when the priest would hold up the bread, he would pronounce in Latin, hoc est corpus meum. He would say, this is my body. And so the reformers came out and they said, it's a representation, it's a picture. We don't want to believe that it's the literal body of Christ. Um, So there's been this sharp division, whether we speak literally or figuratively, when we say that this bread is the body of Christ. Um, Well, to put my cards on the table, I'm Protestant. Um, I, I don't believe that it becomes the literal body of Christ. One reason to take it figuratively is that the Passover was figurative. You know, in the Passover, they would hold up the bread and they would say, this is the bread of our affliction, which our ancestors ate in Egypt. And they weren't literally saying it was the same bread. Um, 1,500-year-old bread tends to get moldy. And so, so they weren't saying this literally is that bread. They were saying it's got a strong association with that bread. And to eat that bread was like we were eating with our ancestors. You know, a second reason to believe that it's figurative and that it's a picture of the body of Christ is that Jesus says we do this in remembrance of him he doesn't say that this is a re-offering of his body and his blood in front of us. In fact, if this were a re-offering of Jesus and, an, and a sacrifice of Jesus, which we don't believe, then there wouldn't be anything to remember. Um, my son Hudson uh, fell down a few stairs this week, only a few of them. Um, he spends his entire summer covered in bruises, just falls constantly. He's, you know, he, he's just beyond toddler, but not twi- quite quite kid. And so he's, he's just bouncing off stuff, breaking left and right. Um, and so he fell down the stairs, and it shocked him to fall down a few stairs. He was crying, and five minutes later, the tears had gone away. The crying had stopped. We're sitting on the couch, and he says, do you remember when I fell down the stairs? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, buddy, it was five minutes ago. We're, we're still sitting here recovering from that. Um, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And uh, if we were to say, that this were an offering of Jesus Christ, that this were the sacrifice of the mass, for example, when we take this together, we, we couldn't at the same time say that it's a remembrance of the offering of Jesus because it's happening right here in front of us. We don't need to remember something that's happening right here. So, so it's a remembrance. It's not uh, an offering of Jesus. And another reason to take this figuratively is that Jesus Christ in his literal body was literally there when he held up the bread and said, this is my body. Um, So, so we saw the literal body of Jesus there, and then he says, "The bread is my body." Jesus would speak figuratively all the time. He said things like, "I am the vine, I'm the branch, or I'm the vine, you're the branches." I'm the light, I'm the door. He would say all these things, and we understood that he was speaking metaphorically. And I think when he held up the bread, it's easy for us to say he was speaking metaphorically when he said, "This is my body." If I held up a picture of my family and I said, "This is my family," you would all know that I'm saying that it's a picture of my family. You wouldn't think that I think that my family is an 8 and a half by 11 piece of paper um, with you know, this colorful image on it, almost two-dimensional. You wouldn't think that. You, you would know that I'm saying this is a picture of my family, but I wouldn't have to say that. I wouldn't have to say this is my family. Okay, it's not really my family. Technically, it's a picture of my family. Nobody, nobody does that. And so, so here Jesus holds up the bread, and no, he doesn't qualify it by saying, no, it's not technically my body, but we don't do that when we talk about a picture. Now, having said all that, that doesn't mean that we don't treat this eating and drinking with respect. My office right now is kind of a mess, covered with papers all over the place, just kind of scattered. And in my office, there's a picture of my wife. And in that picture, the, the paper that it's on is really the same substance as all the other papers. But because it's a picture of my wife, because it represents my wife, it's framed, it's hung up, it's treated differently than all the other paper. So together, when we eat the Lord's Supper, it is a big deal. It does matter, and it matters because of what it's a picture of. Um, It it matters not—I mean, you can buy this matzo bread and just eat it, if you're into that. Um, You you can just eat it on your own. It is just bread. But when we're eating it and drinking it together and saying that this represents the body and blood of Christ, it is a very big deal to us. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11 says this in verse 26. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup— So he gives a strong warning about the way that we eat this. He says that God will discipline people who eat it in an unworthy manner with weakness, illness, and death. Now in a second, we'll get back to what it means to eat it in a worthy manner, but but for now, it is a big deal. The fact that we don't believe this is literally the body and blood of Christ doesn't mean that what we do together when we eat the supper doesn't matter. That's just some flip observance. It's just what we do. It matters in a big way. Um, So Mark 14, 23. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, this was familiar language for them too. Uh, you don't have to turn there now. We'll put it on the screen. But in the Old Testament, there was a time when Moses gave the people the blood of the covenant. And this is what it looked like. It's one of the gorier passages in the Bible. Um, and that's saying a lot. Verse 5, it says, and he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took, okay, so, so oxen are dying. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. I mean, I'd imagine an ox has an awful lot of blood in it. Um, I've never measured it, but an ox has volume. And so, so this is a bloody observance. He's taking half of it and dumping it at the altar. And then half he puts in basins. He took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And then this is gross. Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. And he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. You read through the Bible, and and there are times, like our uh, Lydia, our nine-year-old, is going through the Old Testament. And there are times where I'm going, man, I don't know if I want her to read this part. Because there's some gory stuff in there. Um, The the Bible is a bloody book. Especially, you read through that Old Testament, and you can't get away with it. And we love to talk about, you know, the way that Jesus loves us, and, and we'll be talking about that a lot but man, you go through and you can't get away from the gore. And you almost wonder, should I even read this? Should I even talk about it? Why would God do all of this? Uh, We we tend to stay away from gory things. Uh, This morning on the way to church, um, I was driving in on Mount Hope, and I don't know if anyone else saw this. There was a a deer on the fence of Mount Hope Cemetery that had been impaled on the fence. You're all like, should we laugh um, I, I don't know um it was but it was gross like it just this horrible sight like this deer tried to jump and lost his step and that's it's a bad day if you're a deer and there was a fire the fire department was there and they were going to be taking care of it somehow apparently and i was thinking should I tweet this? Like, should I, should I turn around, take a picture? I actually pulled into a side street, and then I was like, no, I can't put that on Facebook. My mom sees my Facebook. And so, so I came back. I didn't end up taking a picture of this horrible thing. But what we tend to do is we see those gory things, and we say, should I even talk about it? Should I even take a picture of that? I, I don't even want that to be mentioned. Um, you read through a lot of the Bible, and it doesn't necessarily feel like all happy, happy, joy, joy. There's a lot of, okay, now he's chucking gallons of blood at people. What is going on? And, and the big message all throughout the Old Testament that God is driving home is that sin is very, very serious. I mean, these people had sinned, and these oxen had to die. Blood had to be spilled. There had to be a sacrifice. It was a big deal that there was sin. And so now Jesus comes and he says, this is the blood of the covenant, and he holds up the cup, and within hours, he's going to die and spill his blood so that sin can be forgiven. Now we hear that and we say, isn't this just strange? I mean, doesn't that just kind of sound like pagan cult religions? You know, the gods are mad and now they need a human sacrifice. Can't we just get back to talking about the love of Jesus? Why does it have to be so gory? Well, this actually says a lot about his love. It says a lot about his heart toward people because anytime we love somebody— who is really needy, it does cost life. It does drain us. You know, it's easy to love people who are pretty together. Uh, it's easy to love people who have jobs and social skills and who, who have all the same values that we have and who are just like us. They're pretty easy to love. But when you get in a relationship where you start having to love somebody who's needy and you have to pour yourself into somebody else, there are times where you have to be drained so that somebody else can be filled. I mean, parents see this when we've got little kids. Um, For those kids to be filled, for those kids to grow, for those kids to even survive, we have to drain ourselves. And so we drain an awful lot of energy, an awful lot of sleep, an awful lot of money. Uh, We even drain some physical beauty to pour into those kids. Now, we wouldn't have it any other way as parents, but when you love somebody who has need, it does drain you. Or if you love somebody who's in trouble... You know, a friend of yours blows up his marriage and his life is a wreck now. And you've got to spend time with him and talk to him and and help him out and do everything you can to coach them through just this messed up situation. You know that that can be a draining time someone who's in trouble with the law or someone who's just emotionally needy, for you to love them, it's going to cost you a lot. You're going to be getting calls at all hours of the night. You're going to be called out of your house. You're going to miss the relaxing that you wanted to do in order to give life to somebody else. That's just what love looks like. You know, if you're a leader at work, this is why they pay managers more money than the people who do all the heavy lifting. And the reason is because of the pressure of having to have these other people that you pour into and, and to recognize that all of their failures become your failures. You give them your successes. And that's a draining, that's an exhausting place to live. So here when Jesus says that he loves us, he says he's pouring out his blood for us. He's going to be drained not just emotionally, not just in his energy, but all of his life will be drained for us. He's got ultimate love for us, and we are needy, we're broken, we don't have it all together. We, we can maybe have the social skills to impress one another, but we can't impress God. And Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to shed my blood for you. I'm going to give my life so that you can have life. I'm going to make the ultimate sacrifice so that you can receive the ultimate love. And in fact, he makes a vow to do it. Verse 25, it says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And these days, they would make these kind of blood oaths before they, when they had something to accomplish. Uh, we won't look at it now, but in Acts 23, there's a time where a group of guys say that they want to kill Paul, and they say, we will not eat or drink again until we accomplish this. And it was their way of saying, we are getting this done. It's going to happen. We're going to make sure it happens, and it happens soon. And here's Jesus at this last supper. He says, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again until I'm, I'm drinking it in the kingdom. I'm going to accomplish This redemption. I'm going to be your Exodus, and it's going to happen, and it's going to happen soon. So, what he's saying here is that God is not a God who looks at our need and runs away. He's not a God who looks at our suffering, our sin, our shame, and recoils in horror, but He's a God who steps into it, becomes sin for us, dies on the cross, and redeems us. And He was so committed to it that He wouldn't eat or drink again until it happened. You know, a big thing that we're reminding ourselves of when we take the Lord's Supper is not that our commitment to God was so firm and unwavering and awesome this week. It's that his commitment to us was firm and unwavering and awesome. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're not announcing that I had a great week. We're not announcing that I've got it all together. We're not announcing that there's no sin in my heart or in my life. We're announcing the faithfulness of God. We're remembering our exodus that took place on the cross. We're announcing that God's faithful to us and that we now have this identity as these new covenant people, not because we've been awesome, but because blood was spilled, because it was paid for. And pretty soon we'll see here after this supper that Peter would pledge that he won't deny Jesus and he'll go right out from there to deny Jesus. At the beginning of this supper, Jesus warned that someone, Judas, would deny him. And so, so sandwiched in between these, this promise of someone who would betray him and someone who denies him, we have Jesus being absolutely faithful to his commitments. And Mark wants us to see that. He wants us to see that Jesus is the faithful one in the midst of people who are not faithless. He keeps his covenant in the midst of covenant betrayers. So, so when we approach this table, when we take the Lord's Supper, taking it in a worthy manner is not a matter of having a perfect resume from the week, but it's coming similar to how those disciples came, where they're all going, Is it I? Is it me? We approach it humbly. We come with a deep sense of our own sin and our brokenness. We come confessing our weaknesses and our failings and our sins, not holding on to any of them, not calling any of them okay. But then instead of staying in that depressed place that recognizing our sins can leave us, we also come boldly trusting Christ that he accomplished what he said he would accomplish. He shed his blood, his body was torn, he was broken, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. He did it. And so when we take this supper together, we're coming celebrating the fact that our sins were dark, they were like scarlet, but now Jesus came and he washed them. Isaiah 1 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So to take this supper in a worthy manner is to take it confessing sin, confessing the ways we've contributed to disunity with other people, and and yeah, making the commitments to make the phone calls to get those things right. But we come not feeling like we have to clean ourselves up to approach Christ. We come celebrating the fact that he came to us that he accomplished our redemption. He did it all. He paid for all of it. My sin had left the crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. That's what we're celebrating when we take the Lord's Supper. And so even though the recognition of our sin that comes in these solemn moments can leave us down, what we're saying when we take this supper should be a cause for great joy. It's meant to be that tool that renews our faith, renews our heart, renews our joy. And that's why in Mark 14, 26, it says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So all this happens, they they take this supper together, and then they sing. And so we together, when we take it, we're receiving something that should bring us great joy. We're receiving a remembrance that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection accomplished all that we need to have forgiveness and a right relationship with God. It also accomplished everything that we need to forgive one another. We're remembering that it gives us our new identity as Christians and that we are people who, above everything else, and beyond all the ways that we're different, the one thing that we have in common is the gospel. My sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, maybe you came with a friend or just came in and felt like you needed something today, maybe you got dragged here, I want you to know about the great offer that this communion that we're going to take represents. And that great offer is not that if you take this communion, it'll make you a Christian because it won't. The great offer is not that if you take this it by itself as a ritual, will will transform you internally. But the offer that we want to make is That your sense of guilt, your sense of shame, your sin from all of of your failings, which we all have, the Bible says there's no one righteous, not even one, it can all be taken care of by Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came and his body was torn so that our bodies don't have to be. His blood was spilled for our guilt. So if we'll recognize our sinfulness, recognize that we deserve the judgment of God, but then recognize that Jesus rescued us and we'll trust in him, trust in his cross, trust in his death, burial, and resurrection, not in our religion and the things we can do to please in him, to please him, but trust in Jesus and Jesus alone and his death for us, then he promises that though our sins were like scarlet, he'll wash them and they're whiter than wool. And that's an offer that you can receive in your seat. So if that's you and you recognize the weight of your sin, just admit that it's true. And then believe Christ. Cry out to him. And it's not some perfect faith with no doubts that you need to be saved. It's just faith that's strong enough to cry out to him and say, God, I I know that I'm sinful. I know I deserve your judgment. Uh, uh, There are a lot of questions I still have, but Jesus, I'm asking you to save me. Jesus, I believe you gave your life for me. I believe you died and were buried and you rose again. And so I turn from my sin, I turn from my unbelief, and I trust in you. And Jesus promises that if we... Come to him in simple, imperfect faith. He'll receive us, not because we were so faithful, but because he was faithful, because he accomplished all that he set out to accomplish, because he swore an oath that he would do it, and he did it. Now, if you're here and you're a Christian, maybe you come in feeling like your week was pretty decent, you kept your commitments this week, and you can rejoice and thank God for doing that in your heart. But also remember that we still have an awful lot that we need to be forgiven of. And we see that top 5% of our sins, but the 95% of that iceberg that's all underwater that we never see, there's still so much in us that's wrong. And so now's a good time to remember that sinfulness, but instead of being just despondent because of it, we also remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we take the Lord's Supper to show the Lord's death until he comes, and we come to this table acknowledging that we all need this. None of us have it together. None of us are good. There is no one righteous, not even one. But what Jesus did for us makes us right with God. And so we take this solemnly. We take this supper confessing our sins. But also we take it celebrating that what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago was enough. So the way this will work is during the next couple songs, this is a good time to confess sin. It's a good time to identify the ways that you've held other people's sins against them so you can get right with those people. But also this is a time to remind yourself of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. To take this supper in in a worthy manner is to take it recognizing that Jesus came to us, Jesus accomplished everything we need, but man, we really need it. So as we sing these songs, you can pray, you can confess, and whenever you feel like you have prayed and confessed, you can come to one of the two tables in the front, one in the back, or one up in the balcony. Um, You can take the bread and eat it, and you can drink from a small cup, or you can dip the bread in the large cup and celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Allow this to do the work on your heart that God said that it should do, to remind you of the gospel so that faith can be refreshed. If you're wondering if your kids uh, should take the Lord's Supper, I would say if you're confident that your kids have a relationship with Jesus, yes. Uh, if you're not, then, then no. And this is for Christians. This is for those who've put their faith in Christ. And that's a general guideline, and we leave that completely up to parents to decide uh, for, for your kids that are with you in the service now. But let's pray, and then we'll worship, and you can take the supper anytime during these next few songs. Father, uh, thank you. Lord, you know what we need. Uh, we can't see you. So you give us these reminders. And Lord, I pray that what we do now in taking this supper would remind our hearts of what they need so that our joy can be restored, our zeal can be restored, our desire for holiness and purity can be restored. Lord, restore us with what we're doing right now. But we know it's not this bread or this juice that we drink that'll restore us. We know it's the work that that does in our heart to remind us of the gospel. So Lord, restore gospel faith in all of us. Lord, take all of our brokenness and help us to know that it was all on you and that you were broken for us so that we don't have to be. Reassure us, renew our faith, strengthen us as we obey what you gave us to remember you and to show your death until you come. We worship and praise you in Jesus' name.